that again. I think that the parameters of society now are incompatible with democracy, and our democracy is going to fail. That was a clip from Professor Jonathan Haidt's speech on Tuesday. He's the co-author of New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind, talking about how social media is going to ruin our democracy. Hi, my name is Hannah. And I'm Shreyas. Welcome to ThoughtBox. Today, we're joined by a guest, another member of the Specs Club. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Mateo. I'm the vice president of Specs. I'm super excited to be on the podcast today. So earlier this week, uh, Professor Haidt came to a Specs meeting and this he's a professor who's one of the most cited psychology researchers in the world and foreign policy magazine ranks him as one of the top 25 world thinkers so we want to get his perspective on what he thinks is going to happen to gen z what is the world that we're going to grow up and inherit and he painted a pretty cynical picture talking about how social media is coddling the minds of teenagers we're expected to get only positive reaffirmation we're addicted to our phones and the sense of virality on social media and the obsession with it is one of the cornerstones that's going to lead to the demise of our democracy. Yeah, I mean, that's valid. You heard him at the at the start of the, the podcast even saying yeah. this is going to lead to the downfall of American democracy. And, and we asked him some, some further questions, and even then he said like he thinks the United States institutions are going to collapse and turn into yeah. some like, you know, third-world country-esque, which... It's a bit of an extreme take, but he's also a very smart guy. He knows what he's talking about. So yeah, we can talk more about that later. But like, let's talk about like like let let's dissect his argument. So starting off with social media, and how psychologically it's taking an impact on us specifically. Like, how do how do you guys feel about using social media? I mean, I think he surveyed the whole room, and like everyone thought it would be they would be better people if social media was cut out of their lives. For sure. Yeah, all those people raise their hand when asked, are you still on Instagram? That was one of the right? most interesting parts. That was so interesting. I have tried to delete Instagram so many times from my phone. And then, you know, a couple of days later, like my friend will talk and be talking to me about, like, did you see that post? And then I re-download it. Did you see what happened to, like, Kim Ye? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, you like, I got, I, I need to know what's going on. Not. I need to be in the loop. <laughs> so it's really, and also what happens is people send me memes, right? Yeah. And then yeah. It, it just gets you back in. So what's interesting is like for our generation, we're really like fish in water, right? Fish mm-hmm. can't see water. We can't see the impact that social media is happening on our brains because this is just the ecosystem we've grown up in in our whole lives. So it's really interesting to me when Professor Haight said that um, there was a time when Facebook wasn't so hateful. This was before the like button, the repost button, before Twitter, Twitter, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Twitter had the retweet. And it was just basically everyone was a mini blogger. You just interact with people's posts. You comment like, "Hey, cute kids," and there was no politics, no news, none of that. Imagine that was Instagram being healthy. That's a joke. I could not imagine. I don't think it can be anymore. Right? Yeah. Time. So you know, I think the generation we grew up in is people, especially in high school. I think it does teeter down a little bit in college, but especially in high school, people are just putting out pictures of themselves out on Instagram. Living their best lives. Right, living their best lives. And yeah. Very. So one, yeah, you compare yourself, you're like, wow, this person went on that vacation or they're going and getting, you know, hanging out with those friends. One, you could compare yourself, feel inferior. The other thing is like, those people are putting out their posts for the school community to judge, right? Right. Everyone follows everyone in school, whether you talk to them or not. And it's literally like a democracy of who you like the most because Mm. you put out a picture 
And if everyone likes it, and if everyone likes you, you're gonna get a lot of likes. You're gonna get a lot of follow-backs. So you kind of can now put data behind the fact of like, who are the most popular kids? And I've, I've, I've had friends who will put an Instagram picture out and be like, oh, that didn't get enough likes in the first 24 hours. I'm gonna take that down. And like, how toxic is that? Oh, right? there's like a whole app that is dedicated to like seeing which time is good to post so that you get the maximum likes. And I think like, wow. so that's like the psychological part that he covered. And right. I think the most interesting part that you also touched on is the business aspect of how media companies have developed this model and like the like button and all of these things to increase retention rate and make sure that they are still competitive. Right. So like they're trying to create this addictive model. That's why you were, you had to like re-download Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to touch on. I, I thought was the most interesting part of you know Heights lecture was that it's it's addictive and it's purposely addictive. And then you you look at um we we had a talk a couple years ago at um at plenary here with uh, some old Facebook employee that came to talk to us about how Facebook actively designs its UI to function like a slot machine. Mm -hmm. With a slight pull of your thumb, you get you know a new wow. hit of a, of a new story or a new hit of some kind of feed, and then you see like, oh, like did I hit the jackpot? Mm. Is this engaging? Is this interesting? Or is it you know? And then you keep scrolling to try to maximize your your dopamine hits. And Facebook is aware of this. They're doing this on purpose, which is just so detrimental. I don't actually know, you know, the, the damage that it's gonna do, but I, I don't see it being, you know, limited in any sort of capacity because it's so ingrained into just like the very way yeah. that it's coded and, and built. It's crazy. Did you guys see, uh, her name is Frances Hogan. She's a Facebook whistleblower. She worked on the product team and working on how to make the products uh, better for, you know, society. Yeah. And she felt that Facebook was lying to its investors about what it's doing, what's its positive impact on society. So she whistleblowed. So she went to the she, SEC. She blew the whistle. She blew the whistle. whistle that, that's yeah. that's crazy. And she went to the SEC and she turned over a bunch of emails. And then she spoke in front of the Senate. She spoke in front of the European Parliament. And her gist was that she released internal Facebook memos that show that they know the impact Instagram is having on anxiety, depression, and suicide among teenagers, especially teenage girls, right? So exactly what we're talking about. You know, you, you scroll up, like, you know when you post on Instagram and you start getting all those likes, yeah, right? And it's like, ding, 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 ding. It's like, it's like you're getting the dopamine hits, right? So- Does it happen to you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's very <laughs> psychological. Um, so te <laughs> oh. um, teenage suicide rate uh, is up 25% for boys and for girls, 70%. So, have you guys seen The Social Dilemma with Tristan Harris? No. There's a scene in there where he's interviewing an ex-Facebook employee where they're talking about how the CEO of Facebook, you know, essentially has a throttle on society. You know, he wants to sell more makeup products, beauty products to teenage girls. He, like, ups that advertising throttle. It goes up, and then you see the rate of suicide among teenage girls go up. And then they're like, oh, shit, did we do something? So then he brings that throttle back down, selling less advertising, less beauty products, and that suicide rate goes back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, like, you guys mentioned this, the dopamine level, like, the ding, ding, ding. I think the one thing that he also mentioned is that the strongest way and the strongest emotion you feel that adds to this, mm -hmm. like, need to be on social media is hate. And so these platforms become suddenly really engaging, and this is what draws people in, uh, especially young people, um, and they become really polarizing because what is it that gets engagement? What is it, what kind of newsfeed stories are the ones that make people share? 
What emotion? Anger. That's right. It's anger. For sure. Um, I actually want to touch on something that you just said, which I thought was really interesting, um, relating to uh, Hyde's point about how they know um, that they're doing this and, and what the whistleblower said as well. This reminds me a lot of the whole like tobacco scandal in the 90s and how you know when when um, Phil Morris like inevitably got sued, they didn't get sued because uh, you know tobacco is unhealthy or cigarettes are addictive. They got sued because they knew that and they didn't tell that to their consumers. And so, to what extent like will we see Facebook hit uh, get hit with some sort of you know mega lawsuit down the line? Uh, you know, saying like, yo, you knew how you, you literally have like you said the throttle on suicide rates. This is terrible. I, I'd argue that like this is worse than cigarettes, and yet we're all on it like, you know, like like it's literally nothing. And so, I don't know. I, I that's really interesting. So, uh, basically, opening up Facebook and other social media companies to be sued by their consumers, arguing that these companies are just lying to us about their products. And so, like the social media aspect of it, I think making sure that people feel like have connect strong emotions to social media is what gets them to continuously use these platforms but as we've also talked about that has led to polarization excessive polarization and i think like i really want to talk about how he's witnessed this kind of shift on campus i think he said like in 2014 yeah in 2014 um, on how students all of a sudden began protesting who was brought on campus and what people were allowed to say. But suddenly, for the first time in 2014, Greg finds that it's students who are actually asking for a book to a speaker to be banned, or um, or you know, or or just restrictions on speech because the speech is said to be violence or upsetting or something. And we're talking about speakers that you don't have to go to, but but you know wanting to shut down speakers that restrict, restrict speech and ideas. I mean, their whole argument is that why are we platforming, you know, this heinous, horrible person? I, I brought up the example earlier of um uh, before we started recording of uh, uh, Henry Kissinger when he right. came to Stern uh, four years ago, and was giving a, like a fireside chat here with uh, Dean uh, Menon when she was still here, I think, and. And students like, went outside on Gold Plaza and, and protested, you know, his his speech. And I think that brings up an interesting question, which is, should we platform heinous, horrible people, or should we block them out? I mean, as someone from Argentina, you know, Henry Kissinger staged many a coup in my home country, uh, which has arguably led to the situation that it's in. So I hate him as much as the next guy, but I, maybe controversially, don't think he should be... Uh, kicked off campus when right. it comes to talk. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, and I think that's like goes to his whole argument on how that would lead to the fall of our democracy. Like, you know, people are so they're so against I mean hearing the I went to side. a very very liberal high school and I think like that's definitely something that may have happened. Like where we just ignored the other side of the argument because it it was safer and it felt better to know that like our points and our opinions were consistently reinforced but now that i'm here at nyu i feel like listening and hearing the other side is so important and obviously yeah i can spark a lot of emotions anger or whatever but you know as he says don't shoot the dissenter i think 
what's really interesting is like I, I, I think the question is not like should these people come or not it's the fact like why is this happening the, historically it's really not been the case that someone comes to speak you disagree with them on things and it's and it's like okay I don't we no one should even listen to them why has it become that college students are running the schools saying we don't think this person even deserves to speak here and now administrators and managers the adults in the room are saying okay fine like the students don't want to hear this we just have to play into what's going to help them feel better because Henry Kissinger um, with all his faults it's hard to argue that he has nothing valuable to say right he was Secretary of State he played a major role in the in creating the world that we live in right now hearing what he has to say and being able to disagree with him actively and civilly and also allowing your own viewpoints to get challenged is so important so you know building on your point um, when professor height was here he was talking a lot about how both sides the far left and the far right shoot their dissenters right so if we look at on the republican side the example of congresswoman liz cheney i mean she is republican royalty she is the daughter of dick cheney that is mm -hmm. as republican as it gets and she also votes down the ballot 90 percent with conservative values she didn't believe the election was stolen so she was kicked out of her own party she was kicked out of Republican leadership Congress. They replaced her with someone who has less conservative views, who votes less with conservative principles, but believes the election was not, uh, was, right. was stolen by President Biden. And Professor Hyde talked about this, how social media has amplified four groups. Who is it who is out there posting, attacking, yelling, and screaming? Uh, the far right, the far left, trolls, and Vladimir Putin. We talked about like how Russia like plays an active role in this. Like I don't know that I, this is very open ended. It's like the rise of aut autocracies in general. Um, how social media has amplified that rise. Uh, first and foremost, I mean, I, I spent a bit a couple of years living in Moscow, and my um, sort of understanding of, of Putin up until this recent you know few weeks until last attitude, week, yeah, have very much changed, but. Um, Putin is a fairly liked president, um, especially by middle and, and lower classes in, in Russia, because he transmits the idea that he's this you know, strong leader that unifies Russia. Um, there's this idea in, in, in Russia that you know, the West wants to break us apart and, and take us, and we need to be strong and together, um, which is, is why Putin has done such a good job capturing uh, a lot of the, the base, uh, a lot of his voter base in um, in in you know in, in Russia. That being said, um, you know social media has certainly played a role in in his rise to power and his sustaining of uh, power. I don't I don't actually I mean I'm a, just based off of like what what Haidt was saying. You know his um, his whole argument is that Russia deploys trolls and um, you know the social media apparatus very effectively, and I agree. I'm sure they're doing that within their own country to, you know, try and, and secure and retain. I mean, Navalny. I, do you have? Have you guys heard about uh, yeah. Navalny? The, um, he's the uh, Russian journalist who was a dissident of Putin and is now in prison following, you know, his dissent. Right, and he rose to like you know very popular status in in Russian journalism. He um he he essentially just got like absolutely destroyed everywhere on the internet. Um, which is crazy because he wasn't really doing anything wrong, um, and so yeah, I'm sure that Russia does these, um, you know, these sort of like social media esque tactics to try to to try to control the narrative on their side. 
Um, and, I, and I'm not surprised. I mean, we do them here too. Um, it, it happens everywhere, which is, I don't know. I, I, I went sort of in a roundabout way of, of answering your question, but I sort of gave my vague thoughts on Putin. Um, so I think building up what you're saying, what Putin does effectively is people who disagree with him to get deplatformed, right? Mm-hmm. It's either Putin's way or the highway. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see resemblance of that in American culture, like building off uh, what we're just talking about with Liz Cheney and the Republican Party. And you see the same thing on the far left, right? If you're not as liberal as the far left, you're going to be called racist or sexist or like a lot of other things when healthy discourse, even when a single political party, is so important. No institutions can be trusted. So I think it's going to just look like that. I'm not saying we're going to be, you know, out in the street starving because Amazon's still going to be delivering stuff. Uh, the business community is much more nimble, much more resistant, but our political institutions in a democracy, I think, are going to look much more like those of Latin America. So I think this example that the professor used was really great about how business is very nimble mm-hmm. because if you're in a boardroom with, you know, your, your executives and you're discussing what's the best way to move forward. You need discourse. You can't just have everyone who has this one idea just move forward with it. You need to hear the other side. You need to understand if it's working. You need to engage with the customers and get feedback from them mm-hmm. so you can constantly adapt your ideas and keep moving forward. Yeah, there's there's no, there's no, um, how do you say, like, like, there's no, like, subsisting in business. Like, you either sink or you swim. Exactly, right? Because you, you have the profit incentives. Yeah. So you need to constantly make sure you're having good ideas. Mm-hmm. But... In order to have a good government, you need the same thing. You need discourse about what are good ideas. So if you constantly shoot down the people who are disagreeing with you, even within your own party, how are you going to govern when you're in control? You're just going to have all the people with the same idea building off, and every time someone disagrees with them, we're going to kick them out of the party. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to embarrass them in front of the public. We're going to deplatform them. You're just stuck with all the people building off each other's echo chamber, inevitably creating bad ideas and inevitably creating a really bad government. Right, and our Congress has been the least effective that it's ever been in its history, uh, whereas before both the Senate and the House were like very, you know, models of democracy and how to, right. you know, pass uh, laws and regulations. And now, you know, they're so terribly divided directly down the middle, and because of this lack of uh, discourse and this intense polarization, which, you know, you could attribute to social media, uh, hasn't really passed any major, you know, bills since you could argue Obamacare in 2008. So, like, it's insane that, you know, so, a, a body of, of law that was once so productive is now so polarized that nobody is willing to jump ship and say, you know what, okay, like, I think that, like, I am, you know, 90% conservative, but... Uh, the Democrats are making a good point here, or I don't like this bill that the Democrats are proposing, so I'm going to go side with the Republicans on this. And so literally nothing gets passed. It's just 50-50 down the bill every single time. Yeah, and I think social media has a huge portion in just the fact that, just based on the statistics, Republicans and Democrats don't meet with each other as much. They used to have bowling nights together and dinner parties together. They don't do that anymore. Yeah, you know, that was the 90s. They would they would uh, get lit together. None of that anymore, right? They hate because it is more popular for them to embarrass their opponents and make them seem like devils on earth than to work with them. Because when you can paint them as the enemy, that's what gets people moving. That's what gets people to come out and vote for you. And that's what Trump did with Twitter. Like, exactly right. what he's saying. So done. we blame Congress a lot for their dysfunction. We blame them for the fact that they can't work together. We blame them for the lack of bipartisanship. And then, you know, exactly as you're saying resulting in nothing productive getting passed. But it really is our fault, right? We value when 
we can root for one side, cheer for them like football fans, and root for the demise of the other side. We almost cheer. Uh, there's a lot of Democrats cheering when President Trump got impeached. Yeah, that's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment on the country, right? It's not yeah. a good thing that your president's getting impeached. It's a, it's a, it's an L for everyone, right? It's an L, it's a it's an L for everyone. So you shouldn't celebrate your president getting impeached just because they're of a different party. But we've just lost so much trust in our institutions that we don't care. It's a, it's, it's a lot of people just care about winning. They want to make their side look good and the other side look bad, and it comes at the cost of getting anything done. So we talked a lot of we talk we touch on a lot of subjects. Um, what do you guys? What are, what are your ultimate outlooks? Do you guys do you guys have hope? Because I, I, I don't want to be that person, but I have hope. You I don't hope? think. Why do you have hope? Do I don't think. Hope? How dare you have hope? I don't yeah. think we'll be the doom guys. We're not in the doom loop. We can why? we can break the loop. How? Why? Oh, I'm just saying that because you know gotta stay optimistic <laughs> these days. Like I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe our democracy is crumbling as we speak. I don't know. I, I have partially lost faith in our institutions, which oh, is kind God. of sad to say. Like, I'm sorry, it's just Amazon is more full-time lobbyist than, um, like, than Congress people in the United States. Like, they have over one lobbyist per, per senator, right? I don't think it's Congress people, I think it's senators, but, but it is insane. Um, and I don't know that we have, like, you know, a viable way to affect change while... While, while, while sitting on this sort of massive, inefficient Congress. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't really know. So I also have faith um, for different reasons. Like, I think, I think the impact that social media is having on our democracy, on our people, on our psychology, I think that's inevitable. But if you look at what's happening in other countries, uh, in the Western world, there's a lot of movement for data privacy rights. There's a lot of movement for... Uh, forcing Facebook, Google, the right? They've done a great job, and that's a huge market for these companies. So if they have to accommodate in those markets, I think America is eventually gonna follow suit. But also, I think I have a lot of faith in people. So I worked at a campaign uh, during the 2020 election cycle, yeah. and uh, <laughs> what was great about it is, you know, I'm from New Hampshire, and there's you know extremes on. We we have the extremes of everyone, right? With the extreme libertarians, extreme right, extreme left. And everyone in the middle. So I love any handshake. We're so small, but so politically divided. Mm-hmm. And I got to talk to a lot of different people. And I really, truly believe that people agree on more than they disagree. They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. Because we're, when someone decides that they think the democracy is being ruined and stolen, and they need to invade the Capitol and hold our members of Congress accountable, in their mind, in their morals, with the information that they are stuck in, the algorithm they're stuck in, they're patriots. Mm-hmm. They're just stuck in a different algorithm. And then the people who think that the, you know, on, on the far left that think that we need to take down the government because capitalism is oppressing people and that results in the burning down of small businesses and results in like a billion dollar in damages, those people also think they're patriots. Mm-hmm. They're just stuck in a different algorithm. And I think if we can just bring everyone out of the algorithms and work, for, work with people to bring back discourse, I think human nature is stronger. I think people will see the good in each other when they can sit down and have discourse. It's all about people willing to, at an individual level, I really think it just comes down to going to people you disagree with, having conversation, grabbing coffee, and willing to respect someone despite their beliefs. 
Thank you for joining us today, Mateo. It was great having you on the podcast as our first official guest. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was an awesome experience. Hope to be back again soon. Are our college campuses too soft? Is social media destroying our lives? Is our democracy doomed? Tell us what you think. Email us at specs at stern.nyu.edu. We look forward to hearing from you.